The Irish Times Books Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's ethically sourced cocoa for a delicious chocolate taste. This is the Irish Times Books Podcast with me, Martin Doyle. On this podcast, I talk to young author Kevin Brannock about his acclaimed debut collection of essays, Tunnel Vision. And later, in the five decades since their inception, the Hennessy New Irish Writing Awards have helped to launch the careers of many of Ireland's best-known authors, including Sebastian Barry, Joe O'Connor, Colin McCann and Mike McCormack. I talk to veteran arts journalist Kieran Carty, who curates the awards, about that prestigious history. Tunnel Vision, Kevin Brannock's collection of essays, is an original, erudite and entertaining combination of art criticism and self-portrait. It is the work of a young writer, talented but not yet fully formed, and disarmingly aware of this. Human Barakat, reviewing in the Irish Times, writes, The conspicuous erudition is mitigated by a disarming self-awareness, as Brannock frequently sends up his own earnestness during the naive hinterland between adolescence and mature adulthood. Growing up in public is widely held to be unseemly, but in its best moments, this candid portrait of the young writer as flaneur, fanboy, sometime chronic masturbator and occasional cad makes a good case for ditching that taboo. Sally Rooney says, Kevin Brannock is making what seem to me substantial contributions to the field of essay writing. He brings a keen sensitivity to the practice of criticism and a superb critical intelligence to his own intimate personal narratives. His essays demonstrate not only an impressive depth of learning, but an even more necessary depth of feeling. He is certainly one of the most interesting writers working in Ireland today. Here's Kevin reading a passage from Tunnel Vision, where he and his girlfriend visit an art gallery in Munich and poke fun at a painting. In the Alta Pinacothek in Munich, there is a painting of Veronica which shows her standing all gloomy in red, an embossed effect of halo at her head, a choir of angels at her feet and pinched in the preposterously dainty fingers of each hand, a corner of her famous veil. The painting made Colette and me so giddy the first time we came across it, the face of Jesus Christ, morose and faintly dopey, that crown of thorns stuck fast onto his head, all rendered in such highly stylized detail as to make the story of its original formation, an inadvertent impression of his blood and sweat and tears, seem ludicrous in every sense laughable in the way they tell you to ignore in paintings that precede the Renaissance. Colette closed her eyes and addressed the ceiling of the gallery with a comic frown, an old impression she would do of the fresco of Christ that a Spanish parishioner had ruined, infamously, in an unsanctioned effort to restore it. There's an awful lot of painting going on there, she said then. Or maybe that was me. It was the weekend we arrived, I think. Late February, early March and my socks had soaked right through, my only shoes no match for the snow that so thickly coated all the pavements that everything, even horror, turned to magic. At the top of the overblown neo-Gothic Neu Rathaus, not far from the Alte Pinacothek, two mechanical figurines emerged through a small door, circling one another in a drawn-out dance to mark the beginning of another hour. Yet in those first weeks, time seemed to have frozen. The city felt familiar, though I knew almost nothing about it. We had landed, it seemed, in the landscape of a dream. But yours or mine. 
do you reckon? Kevin, uh, welcome to the Irish Times and congratulations on the publication of your debut collection of essays, Tunnel Vision from Faber and Faber. Thank you very much. Um, how have you found the experience so far of being a fully-fledged debut author? I have probably spent more time on the internet than I would usually, which is saying something. Googling um, your own name? Googling my own name, the name of the book, the name of the book alongside my own name, the name of the book alongside book. Yeah, that's how I fill my days okay. at the moment. Um, Tunnel Vision grew out of uh, a series of essays. Um, at what point did you conceive of it as a book? It probably wasn't until I had written the first two essays. There's one on the reconstruction of Munich and the uh, death of my granduncle, Liam Whelan, in the Munich air disaster, which I had written without any any clear sense that, that it would appear in a book or what that book might be. Um, and then I wrote an essay about a summer that I spent in Paris at 19. Again, just a kind of vague sense that these might be like connected in some way. Around that time, I was approached by an agent who thought that there might be some sort of project there. That was at around the time that I moved to Madrid. Um, and so the Madrid essays, which are the uh, the final two personal essays, where I, I guess when you're reading those, you can, I can, or when I'm reading them anyway, I can get a sense of me kind of searching for what exactly the form of the book would be. They're a lot more narrative and maybe um, uh, novelistic, I suppose. It's quite an unusual combination, isn't it? It's a collection of of essays, some of which are art criticism or biographical pieces about artists, almost, um, and. These are counterpointed by um, more personal pieces, almost like memoir or even confessional mm -hmm. in tone. Um, was that deliberate or did that evolve? Two of the critical essays have been written by the time I'd written the six personal essays that make up the book. Um, and once I'd written those, I think maybe the last one that I wrote was the title essay. And once I'd written those, I had a sense basically through the structure of the title essay where it moves in and out from kind of personal narrative to uh, kind of de very detailed um, account of uh, a seven-hour film shot from the front of a train, single-shot film. I kind of learned something about how the personal and kind of more objective critical voice could um, could mingle in a kind of... It, it feels... I don't know anything about accordions, but it feels like it has something to do with an accordion. Um, and once I'd like got a sense of how that, uh, how those two things kind of operated alongside one another, or could influence how the how the meaning of of, of both things, um, I decided to expand that to the size of the book, essentially to insert between the personal essays um, more objective, um, uh, critical pieces um, that would try that would basically make some sort of internal critique of the of what I saw as maybe the potential shortcomings of, of the form of the first-person essay. You write very um, frankly, honestly, about um, some addictions that you had to pornography um, and drugs. Um, how important would you say it is for a writer to have no shame or no filter? I think probably it was quite important for me to have shame at some point in the, in the writing of the book. I think I had to... I needed that shame in order to not write that material until I was ready to write it, um, until I'd learned how to actually, what would be the best way of presenting it, how I could actually instrumentalize the um, the sort of concepts that m might go alongside addictions to pornography in particular, to do with 
the addiction to images, um, the way that I could try and make the pornography, uh, which isn't described in the book. Um, it's kind of a structuring absence, I suppose. Um, but how I could make even the way that um, pornography appears on on free porn websites where it's in a grid, how I could relate that to um, the grid in art history. Rosalind Krauss has written about the grid in a, an essay that I read um, shortly before writing, embarking on the book. And then there's like the passage about um, about Mondrian um, in the final essay. Did you get any pushback from some of the, the friends or family or... Um ex-girlfriends that are, are featured in the book or were they very supportive of the, the um, project? I, I wouldn't say pushback. The person who I write probably most about is um, an ex-partner of mine, Colette, who uh, gave incredible license to me um, when writing the book. But um, there are parts of the book that she chose not to read and actually had a, a friend of hers read um, to just make sure that, that I was being respectful and uh, that it wasn't uh, something that she would, that other people would read and then think badly of her. Um, and then uh, one of the other characters, to be honest, she helped edit uh, the essay in the early stages. Um, yeah, at various points, there's been different levels of enthusiasm. There's a lot of travel in the book, um, Dublin, Paris, Munich, Gwangju uh, in South Korea. Madrid mm -hmm. was that a deliberate decision or is that just uh, you know the fact that you're you're you know a young mm -hmm. uh, graduate whatever and seeing wanting to see the world probably in the back of my head for moving to as a Korea um, there was probably an element of uh, you know if I go over there that's at least in, that's something that's interesting um, but it wasn't it wasn't a conscious decision at the time um, but by the time I was moving to Madrid it was it was uh, um, or sorry, not. It wasn't the only reason I was going there. Um, I I had got a job there. I hadn't been able to get a job in Ireland, um, but uh, I definitely chose it. Somewhat influenced by um, the Van Lerner book, leaving the Atomic Station. So I, I sometimes think about the the book as uh, as being you know that um, kind of me as Emma Bovary, um, having read too many novels and. Uh, being unduly influenced by them, moving away. Um, what about writers then that influenced you? Like, um, like it, it struck me, um, it reminded me a little bit of Des Hogan's The Edge of the City in terms of an Irish writer. Um, his is more sort of geared towards travel writing, I guess, but as an observer of of a different scene. Um, like, was it important not to be in Ireland or to sort of maybe position yourself as a European writer rather than someone just sort of narrowly uh, in the domestic tradition? Um, I suppose that was probably important to me. I, I, uh, when I was in, in college, I would have been a big fan of, of John Banville. Um, and he, he, he always spoke about his kind of European, his European period. I think uh, it's interesting that if I get labelled as a European writer or an international writer in some way, that this is like, it's never spoken in the pejorative about me, whereas um, I think just even looking at some recent reviews of, of other work, maybe there's something about kind of male privilege going on there, because I think if somebody else is labelled as a, an international author, it's or like a, if a woman is, is uh, described that way, it's, it's in a pejorative sense, and it's, uh, it's like this is not an Irish voice, this is a world 
literature voice. Are you referring there to, say, Sally Rooney, who's been described as sort of an international writer with nothing specifically uh, Irish um, anchoring her work? Or? It, was, uh, it wasn't Sally, but um, like I think that that's actually probably what um, Irish writing is going to sound like because we, 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 we've grown up on the internet. We, uh, there is a kind of, there is an international English. Um, and I think that's kind of thematized in the book as well too. It, you know, I was going away to, what does it mean for me to go away and teach English in what is essentially a United States colony? There's all these kind of complicities going on. Um, South and, Korea, is this? Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, which was something that I was kind of, uh, became a bit ambivalent about. Like you're not afraid to kind of poke fun at yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Like you sort of admitted that, you know, um, Korea didn't so much work out for you. You were there for the money or whatever, or to earn money. Um, and um, it didn't work at a certain level because uh, you didn't understand the culture mm-hmm. enough to laugh at its shortcomings in the mm-hmm. same way as, say, when you were in the gallery in mm-hmm. Germany, which uh, mm-hmm. you read from yeah. earlier on. Yeah. It just kind of like, it was great in the sense that, you know, um, you're very funny and there's other incidents, say, where in Shakespeare and Co., the mm-hmm. booksellers in in Paris, you tell a funny story against yourself where you had criticised the the um, shortcomings of their essay collection. Yeah. And then when you're actually in the shop, yeah. um, you were put on the spot and the bookseller asked what was lacking and taking off your sunglasses to look less <laughs> ridiculous. Um, you had to look around and eventually had to give up and say that the only thing was lacking was more works by the same authors. Precisely, yeah. I actually came over here wearing sunglasses and almost was waiting in the lobby wearing sunglasses as well. I was like, I better take these off. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I find uh, poking fun at myself to be what I do best, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm not sure. Or it's certainly what, what people seem to find most refreshing about the book winning yeah yeah but it was also as a way of you know it's always making fun of my kind of cultural pretensions um and i think that that was important to publish a book like this which contains six art historical narratives about uh sort of major european and american um uh literary and artistic figures that i needed to like convey some sort of sense that 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 there's a certain kind of pretense going on with those essays as well and that if uh you know, if they're not, if they're people that you're not familiar with, that uh, or that the reader is not familiar with, that uh, that to some extent, I'm only familiar with them because I needed them for my book. Mm-hmm. That said, you did do uh, a master's in in art history at, at Trinity and in, and in textual and, in, and visual studies, which is uh, similar. <laughs> similar to, but not the same as. Yeah. Um, like those essays, actually, they're they're very well written. Um, I find them mm-hmm. so anyway. Um, Tell me a little bit about, um, is there a deliberate common thread? Um, it struck me that there was um, some toxic masculinity um, going on there, some of the ways in which male artists mm-hmm. um, behaved with regard to the female writers or artists in, in their lives. Yeah, um, well, it, so it starts with um, the first essay after the prologues. God. Uh, is on uh, Bernice Abbott um, and it details kind of her working relationship with Man Ray who actually did a dissertation on and so he she worked initially as his assistant as photographer's assistant um, he gave her this job when she had she was kind of desperate coming back from Berlin so she took this job and so sorry, it's not just a relationship of uh, man and woman but also of employer and employee and uh, he was very happy with her work, but refused to um, give her a raise after a number of years. Um, 
instead suggesting that she use uh, his photographic equipment to take pictures of her friends, people like Juna Barnes and um, Thelma Wood and uh, Edna Millay and so on. Um, and uh, and she did this very successfully, so much so that um, she began to um, receive inquiries from Man Ray's clients, at which point he immediately fired her and removed access to the camera and the uh, developing room and so on. Tell me then about the, the case of the, the photographer Kurtesh. Is that how you Kurtesh, pronounce it? Uh, so there's an essay about um, he took a, a photograph of called Elizabeth and I in 1933, uh, a portrait of him and his new wife, Elizabeth, formerly Elizabeth Salome. But her, basically he had been married already, um, which he, she seems not to have been aware of. And in what I have judged to be um, a deliberate attempt to sabotage the photograph, um, she moves her hand slightly while the exposure is being made. As a result of which the ring comes out doubled, which I've, well, I've suggested is, is some sort of uh, attempt to call out the fact that he had been married already um, before she moved to Paris. And he cropped uh, the photograph uh, twice um, so that the ring was no longer visible and it was just her face. So that was his revenge and her revenge, possibly. Yes, per perhaps, yeah. yeah. But then he returns to it in 1964 and... Uh, I think it's a much more uh, contrite cropping. Unfortunately, I have not received permission to print any of the photographs, so they all appear as kind of blacked out um, blocks of space. And my brother actually rang me up on the day of the publication. I was in Pier Street, the art station. I've spotted an error. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he seriously, but I couldn't hear it correctly. Um, so I, I, I could just hear like a train train of all things like mm. blocking out this noise and he was like there's an error there's an error and, and he was trying to explain to me the error mm -hmm. and it took him three times of telling it before I uh, you had to tell him it was deliberate I was like that was deliberate yeah, yeah. you're yeah. operating at a higher level <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that the best of luck with your debut collection great thanks very much Tunnel Vision by Kevin Branick is published by Faber and Faber Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa, choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. I recently met Kieran Carty, curator of Hennessy New Irish Writing, and talked with him about the competition's long history and about the significant role its founder, the late David Marcus, played in the Irish literary scene. As a student in 1946, Marcus founded a literary quarterly, Irish Writing, which published, among others, Samuel Beckett before Waiting for Godot was written and when the author was virtually unknown outside France. In 1968, Marcus had the brainwave of starting new Irish writing in the Irish press as a platform for new writers to appear alongside more established names. And in 1971, he secured sponsorship from Hennessy for an annual award ceremony and a generous prize fund, which helped many aspiring writers take their first step on the literary ladder. David Marcus, he'd been doing a writing journal in the 40s, just after the war, Irish writing. And I mean, it attracted all sorts of people, some of the first work by Beckett and all that kind of thing, working out of his a kind of a room in Cork. Mm -hmm. but then he had to emigrate and the Irish writing disappeared. And he came back in 1967 and he wanted to create a literary journal for new writers. 
and publish them beside established writers. Yes. But uh, all the literary journals were had folded or were about to fold. Mm -hmm. And he had this brainwave of having a literary journal that was actually within a national newspaper. So it would be free and it would have a wide audience. And the press fell for it. The Irish press. The Irish press. So it started off as a weekly page or a monthly page? It started off as a, a weekly page. Mm -hmm. So a short story every week. A in, short story. The Irish press. And, and poems. And sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, more than, more than one. Mm -hmm which was, you know, for a, a national paper, was quite unprecedented. Quite remarkable. And, of course, it made a huge impact right away. Who were some of the first people to be published? Um, well, the very, the very, one of the very first was Des Hogan. Mm -hmm. He was 18, and he had a, his first story Gosh. published then. Right. And, uh, and, but always, Dave was having people like Edna O'Brien, so that if you were somebody like Des, an mm -hmm. unknown 18-year-old, you might find yourself. I don't know, I don't know who was in the page when he, he's a thing of beer, but it, sure. that was the idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Established names side by yeah, side yeah, with yeah. up-and-coming talent. Um, so tell us a little how it developed over the years then. When did the awards themselves start? Well, uh, David sort of bumped into, I think it was Nigel Beamish. From, uh, he was handling the Hennessy things in Ireland, and of course Hennessy, the Irish family, mm -hmm. the wild geese. You know, Richard Hennessy had gone off to France in the 18th century, and... He just happened to end up in a in a little place called Cognac, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, he started. Worked he, out well for He started brandy. Yeah, you know, Cognac became synonymous with brandy. So Hennessy took over as sponsor yeah, then well, of it, the, I mean, the page on the awards? Uh, Beamish, apparently, I never met Beamish, but apparently he was a very sort of cultured and mm -hmm, open fellow, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he got on very well with David. And David said, you know, we, it'd be great if we could get some kind of awards to recognise mm -hmm. the best writing published every year in New Irish Writing. So that's, that's how the award started. So that started in 1971. Tell us about um, how you came to get involved then. Well, I, I didn't get involved until 1988. Mm -hmm. I was working in the uh, Sunday Independent. I've been there nearly 20 years, but I, they had given me freedom over the past 10 years to uh, create an arts section, you know, not just arts reviews and all that, but an actual separate section, mm -hmm. which I call Dialogue. And I had been publishing uh, a poem and a, a story every month mm -hmm. for some years. And then Vincent Brown persuaded me to come over to the uh, Sunday Tribune. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he said he wants me to start bring, bring, bring write young writers and, into the paper. And within, you know, I, w I went to the uh, Tribune in 85. And then in 88, we heard that the press couldn't keep the page going. They were in beginning of the end of the mm -hmm. press, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, so David Marcus said he'd be happy if we could take it over. And he, okay. he, he, he said he'd be a consultant to me mm -hmm. for the, uh, you know, the first year to make sure, sure. see us true. And mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. the whole thing went for, and of course, Hennessy then decided that they would put more into the awards. And I said, well, let's have a, a, an actual poetry prize as well as just mm -hmm. because Poets were getting a good cut. So that's that's more or less what happened. Great. And tell us then a little bit about um, some of the big names that have won a Hennessy Prize over the years. Well, I mean, when we started, when we took it over in the Tribune, it had been gone, I mean, I think four or five months without any page. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge uh, deluge of manuscripts coming in. And uh, one of the first, you know, people like uh, Anne Enright and... Uh
a pile of them, but Joe O'Connor was the one that caught my eye mm-hmm. because, I mean, he was... Uh, he was living in, in London at the time and he told me afterwards he had given himself until the end of that year to either get published as a writer or he'd try something else, maybe mm-hmm. music. And uh, he won with his very first pr- story, and The Last of the Mohegans, it went on which became become Cowboys, Cowboys and Indians, Indians and yeah. all that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Joe went on to great things too. And the next mm-hmm. year then, Colum uh, McCann published his first story, Tresses, mm-hmm. which he now tells me he disowns. I said, you know, it got you far. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was... And, you know, ever since, I mean, we've had a whole... Lot of, and the thing is, in, we started a thing called Hall of Fame then in, mm-hmm. in the early uh, 20th cent, uh, 21st century, mm-hmm. 2003, where we would sort of give a Hall of Fame award to writers who started off with us mm-hmm. and had since become established names. Mm-hmm. And that was a way of, 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 of uh, reconnecting with people like Sebastian Barry, yeah. who was in an attic in Paris in 1979 when he sent a story to David. Mm-hmm. The Beast, I think it was called, uh, that was published, and uh, that, that changed uh, Sebastian's okay. life. Sure. And there are a whole lot like that. I mean, uh, Dermot Healy and Pat McCabe and, uh, you know, most of the people who Mm -hmm. who are now established writers in Ireland would have Mm -hmm. probably started them because then there was no other outlet, really. For sure. And in fact, this year's two judges, um, Martine Evans and Owen McNamee, both um, had work published uh, through New Irish Writing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Martina was telling me that she she was shortlisted for her poetry and uh, I think it was... 1994 or something like that mm-hmm. and she still remembers the excitement because Hennessy brought her over for the awards uh, that doesn't happen nowadays mm-hmm. but uh, and when, when, when her poems appeared in the paper she was working in a radiographer's radiography department of uh, a hospital mm-hmm. and nobody knew she wrote at all and everyone was astonished that uh, you know this nurse suddenly become a literary star mm-hmm. It was uh, so she was she was very happy and it's, it's wonderful to have her back because the thing is we we like to get established writers or writers who have been connected with the awards to judge the new writers each year so, mm-hmm. and there are two different judges every year and that way uh, we try to avoid having a kind of a stereotypical yeah a high Irish style if you style, like yeah. yeah yeah so for yourself um, do you have a particular preference for a type of story. Um, not, no, to, not no. to contradict what uh, we've just said. No, not really. No, it's, if, if, if you're looking for something that hits you as being original, mm-hmm. and also that you feel has been that it is the work of a writer, mm-hmm. that is not a kind of a robot or uh, somebody following some formula or something like that, and you're also ho- hoping to, to spot somebody that you think might have the potential to become. Not, 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 it wouldn't be a one-off that they yeah. might have the potential to go forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I mean, apart from that, you can write about anything, past, present, future, it doesn't matter. Just give me a sense of how many entries uh, you get in over the course of a month or a year. Well, I'd say we probably get around 3,000 stories and poems combined in any one year. And... Since we came to the Irish Times, I have to say that there was an immediate surge, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting too. We've become, we've reached more to Irish people, writers abroad. Mm-hmm. So it's become more like a kind of a creative diaspora. Mm-hmm. I mean, this year, it, one of the writers is coming for the who's nominated for one of the awards is coming from uh, Switzerland, 
Two are coming from Brussels. One is coming from Australia. Another is coming from Denmark. Uh, another guy who's married with two small children is coming from London. And, uh, and then another one of the shortlisted poets is originally from Canada, but her, her grandparents came from here, and she's now living in Limerick. Okay. So it's kind of... Remarkable uh, reach. The, well, the great thing about writing, it doesn't belong to any, any, any country. It's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's beyond borders. It reaches out. It's mm -hmm. open to everyone. Yeah. And, uh, and readers are the same. So that's what's exciting about being involved in these awards because it's, you never you never feel it's gone stale. Mm -hmm. And so, how does the judging process actually work then? Like, there's can you talk a little bit about the, about the team? It's not just yourself, obviously. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, when we're judging, we get together. We, I send I send all the stories and poems to them at the end of the year, and they have a couple of months mm -hmm. to digest them and to read them. And by the time that they come for the judging session, which I chair. Uh, they're they're very fluent in the things, and they have their own particular favourites. More often than not, I find that it's fairly quick to reach a, a kind of consensus over the leading two or three in each yes. category, mm -hmm. and then that the, the, the real discussion begins. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it, it's always a very they're all, they always have briefed themselves very well, and they're very cogent points to make, and mm -hmm. it's 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 a very pleasurable conversation. I'd say. I mean, it's it's. Judging sounds a bit like a court of law, but it's more a conversation For sure. of sharing pleasures. Just by coincidence, um, next week we're publishing in, in the paper um, an article, an essay by, a very moving essay by Fanula um, O'Leary, whose father, John, uh, won the award in 1977. Um, and sadly, he passed away when his daughter, Fanula, was only seven, but she has written... A uh, very moving piece about um, going up into her parents' attic and discovering her father's story and, in fact, his Hennessy Award and how that was a way for her to reconnect with him. So that's just another example of the the powerful um, legacy of the, the Hennessy Literary Awards. That's very touching. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's, there is a kind of a... For instance, Edna O'Brien's son, Carlo Gebler, I mean, he was involved in the awards. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it, it, it runs in families. It's uh, almost becoming well. a generational thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can read that piece by Fanula O'Leary in the book section of today's Irish Times. Thank you for listening to the Irish Times Books Podcast. Happy reading. <laughs>